The Anarchist's Workbench by Christopher Schwarz Published by Lost Art Press This recording is by Ray Defterius and is not affiliated or endorsed by Lost Art Press in any manner. Any errors or omissions are purely the fault of the narrator, as is any general bungling of pronunciation of names. Chapter 7 Make it damn big. Mostly. The biggest mental hurdle to finishing my first French workbench in 2005 was the size of the bench and its components. I had translated A.J. Rubeau's paragraphs on workbenches from La Art de Menusier and they had me perplexed. The bench should be as much as 12 foot long, the top is 5 inches to 6 inches thick and 20 inches to 22 inches wide. The legs are 4 inches thick by 6 inches wide, the stretches are 2 inches by 4 inches. This isn't a bench, it's a house for a wee French person. Where was I going to get wood that size? And how could I pay for it? I didn't have much money. Lucy and I were still playing blood ransom to daycare, the kids were 9 and 4. So I knew I was going to have to rely on an old friend, Yellow Pine. Then there was the problem of finding the time to build it. The kids were 9 and 4, without stranding poor Lucy. The kids were 9 and 4. Bright idea, build the bench for the magazine. At the time we were publishing two woodworking magazines, Popular Woodworking and a new publication called Woodworking Magazine, for which the staff wrote every word. So there was an enormous black hole that had to be filled with words, photos and drawings every month. At the time we were getting Woodworking Magazine, God Rest It's Soul, up and running, and were agonising over the projects for the Autumn 2005 issue. On the night before our editorial meeting to decide on the projects, I drafted the Rubeau workbench in Yellow Pine. This, I thought, should be the cover project. I finished the proposal hours after my family had gone to bed. I slept for a couple of hours, then headed to the editorial meeting at our graphic designer's house. I passed out construction drawings of the bench to everyone and took a deep breath. You probably know how this ends. I blurted, I'll pay for the wood. It won't cost the magazine anything. Steve. Sold. I started building it the next day. The glue was barely dry on that bench and I was still puzzling over where to put the hold fast holes, an internal debate that took 15 years to settle when Denner Puchalski at Lee Nielsen Toolworks asked to borrow it. He was travelling to the Cincinnati area for a show for woodcraft supplies and needed a bench for demonstrations. It's hard to say no to Deneb, he's a good friend, so I managed to get the monster bench to the loading dock of the North Kentucky Convention Center and onto a rolling cart. As I wheeled the bench past the show's other vendors, people stared. Now that's a bench, one guy called from his booth. It was the closest I'll ever hear to a wolf whistle. Then a guy blocked my path. Did you build this, he asked. I'd like to buy it. How much? I don't even know if it works, I said. It's an experiment. He gave me his business card and told me to call him. This was the first glimmer that this bench design was going to be more than a footnote in my life. At the least, people liked the way it looked. And compared to all the other benches on the convention floor that day, it looked like a monster. Eight foot long with elephantine components. The top was four inches by 24 by 96. The legs were tree trunky five by five. The stretches were two and a half by three. 
Every aspect of every workbench design, from the wood to the vices, elicits scrutiny and division in the woodworking field. But nothing for men's more arguments than the overall dimensions of a workbench. Which has always struck me as amusing, because that's like fighting over which shirt size is the best ever. I'm a 1634, and I will fight you. Here we go. Your bench should be sized to suit your workshop, your work, and you. I think the size of the workbench is like the size of a good meal. Too little is frustrating, and never enough. Too much might seem like heaven at first, but might create some long-term problems. Bench top length. Mostly the length of your bench should be dictated first by how far apart the walls of your shop are. You need some open space at each end of the bench for you to stand and do stuff. And you need some airspace if you use hand planes. No one wants to chuck a plane through a drywall. Shoot for 36 inches of airspace at either end of the bench, or in a pinch, 36 at the one end of the bench where you work the most. The space that's left is a decent dimension for the length of your bench top. What if you have a huge shop, 20 foot by 20 foot? Should your bench be 14 foot long? Well it can be, but it won't be fun to move your bench. And I promise that you will move your bench quite a lot. In theory, a long bench is great. You can work long mouldings on it, and you can cut joinery at one end of the bench with parts stacked on the other. For general furniture construction, cabinets, chairs, shelves and the like, I like a bench that is somewhere between 7 foot and 9 foot long. Most of my benches end up about 8 foot long, or a few inches shorter, because that is ideal for building it with an 8 foot long lumber. Buying 12 foot long sticks for a 9 foot or 10 foot long workbench can be wasteful. So I gather the best lumber I can find for the bench top, I trim off minor end checks, and that's the bench length. It's not scientific. To be honest, I can't tell you how long my current oak workbench is without consulting a tape measure. It's about 8 foot. Or, as I like to tell my wife, it's long enough. I just checked it, and my bench is 95 and 3 eighths. In the course of teaching hundreds of people to build benches at schools, I've had a few students experience a near mental breakdown because their shop is a spare apartment bedroom that can handle only a 5 foot or 6 foot bench. Once again, I think this is where yellow pine shines. Make your shorty bench out of yellow pine with nice vices, do the best job you can. If, when, you are blessed by the pole barn fairy, then remove the bench's vices and build a bigger yellow pine bench for your new space. You'll be out less than $200, and you can sell or give away the old bench's bones to another apartment dweller. Bench top width. The width of a bench is another case where having too much can bite the hinder. I like a bench that's about 24 inches wide. A tad less is fine. That width makes it easy to move the bench through doorways, upstairs, and around normal hallway corners, even with the vices attached. And it's plenty wide for making furniture. You can get all four legs of a typical chair sitting flat on the bench top. A typical 20 inch wide cabinet side fits perfectly there for planing. And you can sleeve typical drawers with 42 inch long fronts over the end of the bench to plane them up. And if your tools are in a rack at the back or on the wall, you can easily reach across to grab them. There's a reason that this width has been the standard for hundreds of years in western workshops. What about a narrower bench? I've made them as narrow as 18 and a half inches wide. 
These are a bit tippy when you are traversing panels with a jack plane. I brace these benches against the wall or another workbench. You can't get all four legs of an assembled chair perched on the bench top, and typical 20 inch wide panels have to be shifted laterally a bit so you can plane them up. It works, it's just a little awkward. Side note, if you inherit a too narrow workbench, it's not a crime to laminate more planks to the back edge of the bench top. Yeah, the wood will look different, but it's a bench, not a tea table. What about a wider bench, 36 inches or 48 inches wide? Yes, these exist. I've worked on them. Yes, they are nice for a few operations where you need acres of space, such as stacking all the parts for 12 full-sized tool chests. Wide benches are, in my experience, mostly a pain. Moving them is no fun unless you work in a garage or warehouse. Reaching across the bench to get a tool that rolled 40 inches away is inconvenient. But mostly I dislike them because they take up valuable floor space. Square footage I could use for saw benches, a bandsaw, or a lathe. In a pinch, I say you can stack your million furniture parts on saw benches, or the impressive floor space you saved by having a normal sized workbench. Tool trays and bench top width. Sadly, we've come to that part of the book where we talk about tool trays. I think they're a plot for bench manufacturers or designers to cheat you out of usable bench top space. Having a solid 14 inch wide bench top with a 10 inch wide tool tray is nothing like having a 24 inch wide bench top. It's like having a 14 inch wide bench top with a 10 inch wide compost bin attached to it. Some people solve this problem by covering the tool tray with a removable panel. And voila, they have the best of both worlds. A hamster habitat hidden below and a wide uninterrupted bench top. Except you can't use holdfast back there. And you can't store anything in the tool tray because it will become mostly inaccessible while you are working. For students who insist on a tool tray, I offer this solution. Make the bench top a 24 inch wide slab, then add a tool tray on the back of the bench that hangs on a French cleat. You can remove the tray in a moment if you need the back of your bench accessible for some weird clamping operation and you don't have to give up any valuable bench top space. The only downside to my suggestion is that you have to stretch to get your tools in the tray. Lervad, a Danish workbench manufacturer, has additional solutions you can swipe. The company makes a tool tray that is removable and is not the full length of the bench top. It can be installed at the rear of the workbench up by the face vise, or it can be installed on the left end of the bench top. If it were me, however, I'd put the tray at the other end of the bench top. When I plane a board, the shavings go right off the end of the bench top and into the garbage can, so I don't want a tool tray there. Bench height. Here's a tip on self-care. Decline to argue about workbench height. The only person who can answer the question is you. You have to think about your work and your tools. For example, if you prefer metal bench planes instead of wooden bench planes, a taller bench might be in order. Wooden planes hold your hands about 3 inches off the bench top. Metal planes hold your hands about a quarter inch off the bench top. Plus remember, your bench can be raised or lowered in the future if you choose poorly. And there isn't one ideal height for a person. It's more like a range of about 3 inches where things feel good, better or best. Also, you can build accessories to improve the ergonomics of common operations. Build a moxen vise for dovetailing so you don't have to stoop over. Build a netto, also known as a bench crafted high vise, for planing legs or spindles. 
Build a small tabletop bench that stacks on your regular bench top if you need your face right up against your electric router. Historically, I found that most workbenches range from about 28 inches to 36 inches high. A too tall workbench is nice for close operations such as carving, but exhausting for general operations, planing especially. Lower benches encourage me to use my torso when planing. Taller benches conscript my arms to do the work. A few modern makers insist on benches taller than the historical norm. They say it's a health issue. Taller benches save your back. I have not found this to be true with normal people with normal backbones. But you might be an exception, I can't say. When I encounter an operation that requires me to be close to the work, chopping dovetail waste, mortising, carving in-your-face detail work, I sit my butt down. I sit as much as possible to conserve energy and get my eyes close to the work. Or I use a moxen vise, an etto, or I grab the object with hand screws in my face vise. So with all that preamble, how do I determine how high my workbench should be inside the historical range of 28 inches to 36 inches? I stand with my arms relaxed by my side and measure from the floor to the point where my pinky finger joins my hand. That's my personal ideal. When I measure other woodworkers at their insistence, I might add one inch to that measurement, which they can remove later from the bottom of the legs with a handsaw. If my measurement falls outside of the historical range, I step back and take a look at the person. Are they ridiculously tall or short? Is their torso long like a grasshopper? Do they have stumpy Vienna dog legs? Even with these people, I usually shift their purported bench height towards the historical norm a bit. If there's time, I have them work on some workbenches of different heights to see how they fare. And if all else fails, I recommend something a little taller because that's an easy fix with the saw, especially with the French Virex workbench design compared to a sled foot workbench base. By the way, I'm 6 foot 3, my inseam is 34 inches, I'm a Gemini, and I prefer a 34 inch high workbench. The size of a workbench is something that has been carefully considered for centuries. It relates to the human body and the built world around it. Fooling around with those dimensions can result in a real snake bite. Think carefully before wandering from the main trail. Divorce is hard on workbenches. Here's my last bit on the importance of historical workbench sizes. Whenever I mention how important it is to be able to move a workbench across town or across the country, most woodworkers respond, Pah! I'm never moving. And so they build a subterranean monstrosity that will never emerge in one piece. Then life grinds their gears. My business partner, John Hoffman, ran headfirst into this problem with the workbench I made. So the design flaw was all mine. He inherited the Nicholson workbench I'd built in 2006 for the workbench's book and it lived against the wall in his basement workshop. He then renovated his basement. He improved the stairwell and the overall look of the place. Shortly thereafter, he and his wife separated and the bench had to vacate the basement. For some reason, I'd built that bench with a 27-inch wide top, wider than usual, 34 inches high and 96 inches long. That sucker would not make the turn around the corner of the renovated stairwell. It was a game of inches, and in the end, the stairwell and the bench both ended up with significant scars. John had to patch the drywall, and he had to trim the legs of his bench, which he later restored to the original height. 
A big bench, small deal. A few months after walking my yellow pine ribot through the local convention centre, I was so smitten with the thing that I decided to write a book about ancient workbenches. I was spending my free time researching old workbench designs in tool catalogues, woodworking books and fine art paintings. The plan was to make the book the same way my college band used to make music, punk DIY style. I was going to write, edit and design the book, then publish it on my own time on a photocopier. Maybe I could sell the book to students at the woodworking schools where I taught, make some beer money. That way I wouldn't have to worry if it was an embarrassment or even ask permission from my employer. Because really, who would want to read a book about ancient workbenches? At the time, I couldn't even imagine pitching my idea to the company's book division, which printed a regular cycle of router book, router book, table saw, carved center. I wrote the book during nights and weekends, both in Kentucky and while on the road for the magazine. About halfway through the writing process, I took a trip to Maine for the 25th anniversary of Lee Nielsen Toolworks with my friend and now business partner, John. I had brought along a book of Esther Price chocolates to give to Tom Lee Nielsen's wife Karen, but they had completely melted into a single brown blob during my journey. So after the celebration, John and I got roaring drunk in our cabin and ate the entire blob, smudging our faces and hands. Painted in milk chocolate, I unloaded all my worries about the workbench book on John. Was it going to suck? John said, And I'll clean up the language in case you are reading this book to your kids at bedtime. I was talking to Christian Bexford today and asked him why he hadn't written any more books after Shaker Legacy. Bexford said there was no money in woodworking books. Somehow, we came up with the idea to start a publishing company that didn't screw authors. We decided we could start by selling my workbench's book on the internet, no matter who was the publisher. Then maybe we could publish other unpublishable books. Or something. I forget. It was all just late night, beer-fueled, you-know-what-we-should-do stuff. The next morning we were hungover as we headed to the Portland, Maine airport, but we remembered the gist of the drunken conversation. While waiting for my flight at the airport's gate, I began writing out an outline of a fair publishing contract, and I drew up the structure of a publishing company we named Lost Art Press. This is where my corporate training loathe came in handy. As I wrote the hippified contract, I simply scratched in the opposite of what I've learned to do in corporate publishing. Instead of paying the authors about 15% royalties, we thought we could split all expenses and profits 50-50. Instead of specifying that we had complete control over the manufacturing, editing and title of each book, we could make all those decisions with the help of the author. Everyone had to be happy before a book went to press. I closed my laptop and got in the airplane to go home. It was a nice idea, but maybe a little too heavy a dose of rainbows and smurfs. Nobody does that. I finished writing, editing and designing workbenches from design and theory to construction and use during the summer of 2007. It was ready to go to the photocopier or to the fire pit in my backyard, but first I had to jump through a flaming administrative hoop. FNM Media, the now defunct company that owned Popular Woodworking and Woodworking Magazine, required its employees to submit any book manuscripts for a first right of refusal. I printed out my book and handed it over to one of the book editors in his cubicle. He said he'd look it over and get back to me in a couple of weeks. In less than an hour, my phone rang. They wanted to publish the book. 
On the one hand, I was elated that someone thought it was good enough to publish, but then came the contract negotiations. When it comes to books by F&W employees, we can't offer you royalties. We can offer you a flat fee of $10,000, the editor said. Hmm. I thought, two years of work for $10,000? That seemed skimpy. I asked, so there's no negotiating room? Well, you can refuse the offer, he said, but nobody does that. Translation In the polite on the surface world of mid-sized Midwest publishers, the words nobody does that is the equivalent of finding a bloody horsehead in your waterbed. I needed to keep my magazine job. In fact, I was deeply grateful for my job. I still consider it the best job I ever had. So I agreed to the terms. On the upside, F&W agreed to print the book in the United States, which seemed a victory until I realized I hadn't got that in writing, so they weren't bound by it. F&W's book division went to work and released the book in the fall of 2007. Pretty much I did everything wrong with my negotiations and F&W did everything right. Had to, to them for the lesson in corporate publishing. But there was a bright side. One of the clauses in my F&W contract encouraged me to start a website and sell the book myself. There was no marketing budget for my title, so it was my job to both write the book and help push it. So John and I decided to incorporate Lost Art Press as a limited liability corporation in Kentucky. We'd sell the workbench's book to make some beer money. Maybe we could also sell t-shirts or some reprints of old woodworking books.